0: That's not, that's not where my heart is this morning. <laughs> how are you guys doing this morning? Are you really? I ask you that because I'm not. Um, as the lead pastor of this church, I'm supposed to come up here and put a very positive spin on everything and be smiley and tell you how wonderful everything is. Um, but that's not where my heart is right now. My heart is in a difficult Place right now, because on Friday, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm trying. On Friday, I had to do a memorial service uh, right here for a very good friend, Steve Rothschild, which many of you probably know. Who, if you were talking to him in the previous days, would have told you that he was fine too. He would have answered that question, "How you doing?" I'm good. He would have said that, and yet he was struggling with the lies of the enemy so badly that he ultimately succumbed to them. And um, he said he was fine. And I think many of us say that we're fine. Um, but I'm not fine. I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, got a good friend right now, Eric Nilsen, uh, who is in the hospital right now in ICU. Um, had a, I'm not supposed to say this, but I'm going to anyway, because we need prayer, we need to understand. He had a massive heart attack um, in the middle of working out. And in fact, in the middle of working out, prior to coming to join us at the memorial service for his good friend, Steve, on Friday. And for us just to say, I'm okay, things are good, and to not share that openly in this body is given in to what the enemy wants us to do. The enemy wants us to feel isolated. He wants us to feel like, don't share what's going on with everybody around you because they're gonna think less of you. I wrote this message last Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday leading up to the midweek service, and it's all about pride. And I didn't know how this week was going to unfold, obviously. But pride is the single biggest weapon that the enemy uses to keep us in a place of isolation where he can just attack us individually. If we're together as the body of Christ and we're being open about the things that are hurting us, the things that are attacking us, the things that we're feeling, in a place where we should feel comfortable and not being judged by that. If we can do that, that's the greatest weapon that we have. The Holy Spirit in us will give us everything that we need. And especially if we are together as the body of Christ, lifting up and encouraging one another. But the problem is the enemy says, "Uh uh-uh, keep that to yourself. Just keep it to yourself. And then he's got you. He can get you alone and he can lie to you and, and we can go down roads that we were never intended to. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Jesus is standing there saying, just turn to me. Give me your burdens. But we don't. We just want to carry them. We just want to carry them. Gosh. <laughs> okay, let's do a reset. James, the book of James is such a, such a practical book, and it's got so much great instruction for us where we are. And last week, the last two weeks, thank you to Pastor Scott for teaching the last two weeks. He, did he do a good job? Woo-hoo! It is such a blessing for Gabe and I to be able to have somebody, an adult, a grown-up that we can trust. Uh, to come in and keep the wheels on, um, keep, keep things going, and not just be a placeholder, but bring a powerful, good spiritual message in, in the word of God, and, and he is that and then some. So we are so thankful, and thank you, Scott, and thank you, Kelly, for doing what you do so that he can come and do that and engage here. And so you guys were in good hands, and we felt comfortable doing that. But though we took a week off, um, the enemy doesn 't take a week off, and so we can 't just say we 're just going to tread water until we get back um, so he was he was great in doing that and the last The last thing that he taught on and, and we listened to the messages from one we le- listened from the cruise ship, the other one from the terminal afterwards um, but gosh, what a great word and the last one of the last things that he taught was james three fourteen to sixteen But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. The wisdom is not what comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder in every evil thing. And that ties into what we're going to teach today. Because bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are rooted, caused by the spirit of pride. And the spirit of pride is demonic. Make absolutely no mistake about that. It is a demonic spirit, and it is one of the biggest weapons that the enemy uses against us. But guess what? We have a weapon equally as powerful, and yeah, you should say equally. I misspoke. It's more powerful, but it's hard for us. You know what that weapon is? Humility. The opposite of pride is humility. In fact, it's the only antidote to this demonic spirit. Humility. You ever wonder why the Bible teaches so much about humility? It's because it's not earthly. It's not in our flesh to be humble. It isn't. And we struggle with that. But James now, he's talking to this group of of believers who have been scattered, but man, they have eaten from the poison apple and they are in danger of death. They are swallowing the spirit of pride, hook, line, and sinker. And so we're going to talk about that today. I want to read this section. We're in James chapter 4. Scott finished out the rest of chapter 3. So we're in chapter 4 right now. We're going to do verses 1 through 10. So James 4, 1 through 10. It's weird looking at these three rows like here. Like, do I spit when I talk? Because there's (laughs) nobody... In the first three rows, like, is there something going on over there? For those of you back row people, it's okay to move up front. I'm not gonna call on you. All right, anyway, I'm gonna read it for you in its entirety so you can get the flow, and then we'll go in and take a look at it. James 4 1 through 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source of your pleasures, is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body's parts? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says to no purpose, he jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. There is a lot there. Did anybody kind of lose it when it said, be miserable and mourn? Did anybody go like, yes, that's what I want to do. But I'm going to tell you why that's important and why we should look at that. Let's get in. James 4.1. We should have that up there. I was late getting the guys uh, my scriptures and everything, so you guys back in tech, thank you. Um, I was discombobulated, and I didn't get uh, everything that I normally do, but look, they, they back me up. James 4.1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body's parts? Now, depending on the translation you have, it might say the pleasures that wage war in your members. I want to tell you translations matter in that because that word literally, it, it's not to be confused with church members, okay? It literally means bodily organs. Okay, I'll go in for the, think loins, okay? That's what he's talking about here. James two. you lust. And do not have, so you commit murder, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. If you think this is a new problem, think all the way back. Anybody who's familiar has done the women's Bible studies in 2 Samuel. Read 2 Samuel 11 and 12, the story of David and Bathsheba. You familiar with that story? David lusting after Bathsheba, someone else's wife. He's a king. He could have anything he wanted, but he decided he had to have that. So what's he do? He sends Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, out into battle and concocts it in such a way that he's likely to get killed so that he can have what he wants. Think the idea of lusting after things that you can't have is just a modern problem? No. It's been going on forever. The problem is, even a king we'll never be satisfied with stuff. There'll never be a point where you're satisfied with stuff. No matter how much we acquire, no matter how much time we spend in the pursuit of just filling up our lives with acquisitions and stuff, we're not going to be satisfied by those things. C.S. Lewis, again, my favorite, my favorite author, puts it a little bit more bluntly. Listen to how he says this. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are far too easily pleased. Wow. Instead of scheming and manipulating to get what you want, James here tells us, why don't you ask God what you should be pursuing? Go to God in prayer and ask him what you should pursue. James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend what what you request on your pleasures. Can anybody think of an example of a prayer with the wrong motive? Anybody? Hear anybody praying about things with the wrong motive? Let me throw out some things that maybe aren't quite so obvious. God, I pray that I get that promotion at work. Okay, what's your motive for that? Not many people would tell you that it's bad to pray for that promotion at work, but what's your motive for it? So I can have a raise, so that I can have more money, so that I can drive a nicer car? Maybe it's, I want that promotion to prove that guy I work with that now I can lord over him that I'm in a higher position. Maybe that's why you want the position. Maybe it's status. Maybe that's why you want it. Are those godly pursuits? Okay. Same prayer, what if your reason for wanting the promotion is so that I can take care of my family when I can barely make ends meet now? And not only that, the promotion would allow me to go and give more give more to the church, do more outreach, help people, help family members who need help. Is that why you want that promotion? Is that a godly pursuit? Is that a godly prayer? I would think so, but it's the same prayer. So what's the difference? It's what's in your heart. It's your motive. If your prayer is rooted in pride, chances are it's DOA, and it's not going anywhere. James 4.4 four. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's a harsh statement. Translations matter here, by the way, depending on the version that you have. Some say adulteresses. Some say adulterers. Some say adulterers and adulteresses. It's all-inclusive. (coughs) <coughs> translations matter the original word in the greek as written as intended is adulterous okay adulterous or adulterous says and that's important because what word do the hebrews historically use to describe people in general who are idolatrous pursuing idolatry adulteresses. says Okay, that's why it matters. So when we read this, you adulteresses, he's talking specifically about idolatry here. Friendship with the world. Again, staying in James 4.4. 4. Friendship with the world. That friendship, it's interesting, the translation there. Here you go. Um, your Greek word for today. It's phileia. Phileia which is the only place it's used in the New Testament here, that word right there, and it means a strong emotional attachment. It's not that sacrificial love. It's not brotherly love or any of the different translations of like phileo and love. It specifically means a strong emotional attachment. So he's saying you have a strong emotional attachment with the world and not with God. God. And then the phrase friend of the world is hostility towards God. Think that's just hyperbole? This is what John says. This is 1 John in his letter. 1 John 2, 15, 16 says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. James is just echoing what John has written there. He's talking about idolatry. James 4, 5. Or do you think that the Scripture says to no purpose, he jealously desires the Spirit whom he has made to dwell in us? That's kind of a hard one to understand, but I found a theologian. His name is Meyer, back from the, from the like 1400s, and he wrote it like this. He said, you are grieving the Holy Spirit who has come to dwell within you, who yearns with a jealous envy to possess your entire nature for himself. That makes it make sense to me. The Holy Spirit wants all of you, wants your entire nature for himself. That scripture, by the way, he jealously desires a spirit who he's made to dwell in us, is is a conglomeration of different scriptures. It's not that specific one is not found. James four six, but he gives a greater grace as opposed to what the world offers. God offers a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That part there in all caps right there in the New American Standard, I love it because it's, if it's quoting Old Testament scripture, it's written in all caps. It's a it's a study hack for me. It makes my life easier. And, but that comes from Proverbs. That's Proverbs 3.34. He mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. But it's found all over in Scripture because it's such an important idea. Now, here's where we get to what I consider the, the, the important part of this section of Scripture. James is going to lay out, I call them antidotes. He's going to lay out ten antidotes. To the conflict between the flesh and pride and the spirit and humility. So, listen to this. As we go through, see if you can pick them out. I'll help you. James 4 7. A lot of us have read this, right? Submit therefore to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Did you catch them? There's two submit and resist. Submit and resist. Two entirely opposite concepts, right? The word submit is hupotasso in the Greek, and it literally means to line up under the banner. It's a military term. That's what you would do if you're lining up in ranks to go into battle. You line up behind the banner. This is my, these are my people. This is my team. That's the banner that I stand under. What banner are you standing under? Banner of the world or the banner of God? Because there's an opposite banner. Resist. Resist the devil and he will flee. Resist is anisthemi. And it means to stand against. So when you're in battle, lining up under your banner, the enemy on the other side, that's what he's talking about. And who's under that banner? If you're under the banner of the one true God, Lord God Almighty, if you're under that banner, who's on the other side? It's the devil and his legion of demons. It's exactly what he's saying there. It's not two separate ideas. Submit, therefore, to God. Line up under God's banner and resist what the enemy is trying to do to you. That's what that means. James 4.8, come close to God and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's another one. Come close. Come close to God. Think about what a difficult thing to reconcile that would have been for the people at the time. Okay? Remember, these are Jews who have converted to Christianity. So when they're thinking about Scripture, they're thinking of what we call Old Testament, which is all about, guess who gets to come close to God? Not you, the high priest. He gets to come close to God. And only after very carefully cleansing his hands and doing all kinds of ritual things to purify himself so that he can approach God. When James says, come close to God and he'll come close to you, we hear that and go, okay, sounds cool. They would have gone, what? I can come close to God? And not only that, but He'll draw close to me? It's hard for us in our times to really understand what a statement that is. Levitical priests only had access to God and then only the high priest in special situations. Exodus 19, if you haven't read it, also have the priests approach the Lord and consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. If you approach the Lord, even as high priest, If you approach the Lord and you didn't do it right, you would die. Again, not hyperbole. That happened if you didn't do it right. Then he says, Cleanse your hands. That's from Exodus 30, 30, 21. So they shall wash their hands and their feet so they will not die. And it shall be a permanent statute for them for Aaron and his descendants. So all these things he's saying, You can do this. It doesn't have to be the high priest. You can do this. James 4.9, this this is the part that everybody's like, okay, I'm gonna tune out for just a minute. But don't tune out. James 4.9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Sign up for that. That's a bumper sticker that's gonna get people to come to church, Right? Here's the thing, though. If you understand what this means, this is the state. This should be the natural state of someone who is truly broken over their sin and who truly understands what Christ did for you. If you understand how sinful of a creature we all are and what Jesus Christ did for us, the idea of being miserable and mourning and weeping, it's a realization of what has been done for you. And our dismissive laughter. Anyone ever, when he talks about your laughter being turned into mourning, think about this. Has anybody ever gone, oh, yeah, I, I, I stole post-its from the office, but yeah, they have they have plenty. They don't need mine. Or, yeah, I told a lie, but it was only really just, you know, just so I didn't have to talk to him about more. This is dismissive laughter. You're sinning by stealing or by lying or whatever that thing is. Maybe it's lust, whatever it is. And we make light of it. We laugh it off so that we don't have to internalize it and realize what I've just done is going to grieve the Holy Spirit and what Jesus has done for me. He says, turn laughter into mourning. That happens when we realize the gravity of what we've done. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, God, you will not despise. That's the opposite of pride, isn't it? I realize what I've done. I realize how that goes against what God would want for me. And I also realize what Jesus did for me. There's a a depth there that we don't often see when we just read that through. Paul, now, Paul talks about this when he wrote to the Corinthians. He wrote them a letter correcting them for all kinds of things that they were doing. Okay, you can read Corinthians. It's it's full of, okay, you guys are doing good, but let me call a few things to your attention. Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians. He's kind of, he's not backtracking, but he's kind of like, let me explain. But he says this, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10 says i now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful like not not that i hurt your feelings but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance for if you were made sorrowful according to the will of god so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us for the sorrow that's according to the will of god produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation Listen to the last words here. But the sorrow of the world produces death. What does that look like to you? The sorrow of the world produces death. What's the sorrow of the world? How about statements like, I'm sorry I got caught. Or, I'm sorry if you're offended by what I did. Anybody ever have those sorry, hollow apologies? that really don't mean anything, that's the sorrow of the world. True sorrow is gonna break your heart. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. There it is. That's the summation of this entire section. Humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. That's also, even though it sounds very simple, That's the hardest part for us in our culture to grasp because that doesn't go along with what our culture today says, does it? You need to promote yourself. You need to make sure that everybody knows the things that you're doing. How are you going to get promoted? How are you going to get praise if you don't let everybody know what you're doing? Luke 18, 10 to 14. Let me read it for you. It's a story that... Jesus tells it's a parable, and it's not a very commonly told parable, so listen to this. I'm sure you've heard it, but but it's not so commonly taught. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and began saying this in regards to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, swindlers, crooked adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes towards heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted it's a great story but doesn't it just go against what our culture tells you like so if I don't promote myself who's going to I once knew a guy I worked with him and, and I was we, we started out at the same level doing the same job and very very quickly he got promoted through the ranks until he was like ultimately the guy the top guy But the way that he would introduce himself to new people that he met, is "Hi, I'll fill in a blank. Hi, I'm Steve. Glad you met me." And I would look at that and go, "That is one cocky dude." But the result of that is that every time he spoke to anybody, including our superiors at the time, was like, "Do you see what I did there? Do you see how I did that? Do you see what I did?" And he got promoted and promoted and promoted. And meanwhile, I'm sitting here going, man, I just keep my head down and I work and I do the same work he does. I just don't talk about it. But what happens is that that promotion of man might get you to the top. It won't keep you there. Because though he made it to the top rung of the ladder, it wasn't any time at all before he was knocked off of that ladder. And back to the beginning. The promotion of man will do nothing for you. The promotion, and when God exalts you, that can be sustained. So let's talk about, I went through, I talked about these 10 antidotes. I want you to listen, because I'm gonna incorporate everything together here. I'm gonna recap, okay? 10 points. Number one, submit to God. Okay, submit to God. Align yourself with God, and stand under his banner. What does that look like in reality? Does that look like I'm going to go out in the world and just keep quiet about my faith? No. That means literally line up under God's banner. Be open when when the opportunity arises or maybe even when it doesn't arise. Be open about your faith. Be open about I am a Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And I follow the one true God. That is who I am. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't hide it. Don't downplay it. Line up under that banner because we're going to battle. Resist the devil. Number two, resist the devil. Deliberately oppose those demonic influences. What does that look like in practice? I'll give you a, a real one. Does that look like, let's watch the Super Bowl halftime show. And man, that looks ugly and demonic and it feels weird and kind of gross but it's entertaining I'm not going to say anything about it I'm not going to turn it off supporting companies that are openly demonic in things that they do but I'm going to support them anyway because I like their stuff that is not resisting the devil and I'm not here to tell you what those things are the Holy Spirit will do that for you But if the Holy Spirit says, that's weird, that's creepy, that feels wrong, you need to stand against that and not let that into your home and into your house and into your spirit, you need to stand up for that. (coughs) Excuse me. Number three, come close to God. A radical concept for these people back there and something that we tend to just say, eh, I'll just take that for granted that I can do that. Don't take this for granted. Intentionally pursue a deeper relationship with Jesus. Come close to him because he's standing there with open arms. Then, Old Testament times, you couldn't do that. I want a closer relationship with God. I best, uh, maybe I'll hang out by the high priest and some of that will rub off on me and just hope he has general favor on me and my people. We can approach God individually individually. Why would we take that for granted? Be intentional about that. Number four, cleanse your hands. Remember that, cleanse your hands. How do you do that? How do we do that? Now, that was ritual back then. How do we do that? We wash the sin off by confessing to God. Okay, you don't have to confess to one another. You can, but confessing your sins to God, being open and honest about your sins to God, confessing to him, That's what he's talking about. Cleanse your hands. Number five, purify your hearts. Easier said than done. You have to look closely at your motives. When you're sending a prayer up to God, think about your motive for doing that. Check your heart for motives and adjust as necessary. Number six, be miserable. Another fun one. Highlight that one, underline it. Be miserable. What that is, though, is you allow the realization of your sins to hurt your heart. You ever do something or say something, whether it's intentional or inadvertent? Let me go to intentional. You say something, maybe you're having an argument with somebody you care about, and you say something that you realize, I stepped over the line. I shouldn't have said that. And you see the response in the other person. Does that cause pain in your heart? Think about that pain, how that hurts. Like, I have done something, I have gone too far, and I've hurt someone I care about, and that causes pain in your heart. We should have that pain when we realize what our sins do to God's heart. Number seven, mourn. Mourning is the inner response to sin. We don't do it for show, it's an inner response to sin, and that mourning should cause us to take a pause just pause in your life for a minute and think about it it's not just oh yeah I shouldn't have done that moving on take a minute and let that mourning sink in number eight weep weeping the outward manifestation of mourning not for display not in not to show people how repentant you are We don't pour dust on our heads and tear our clothes and things like that as a display. But weeping, it's an outward manifestation of your mourning. Number nine, turn laughter into mourning is realizing when we know Jesus' teachings and we openly go against them, we are mocking what he taught. And you may not openly laugh but when we realize we have done that, we should turn our laughter into mourning when we realize what we've done. Number 10, the last one, humble yourselves. Not false humility. Not saying, I am the most humble person you will ever meet. I say that all the time in jest. But it's not, not false humility, the real thing. And that starts with realizing, first and foremost, guess what, you're not God. God. Anybody struggle with that realization that you're not God? Anybody know someone who thinks they are? They might not say those words. King David, God's anointed, chosen ruler of Israel, said this. First Chronicles, again, ladies from the First from the Chronicles study. 1 Chronicles 29, 11 and 12. Yours, Lord, is the greatness the power the glory the victory and the majesty indeed everything that is in the heavens and on the earth yours is the dominion lord and you exalt yourself as head over all both riches and honor come from you you and you rule over all and in your hand is power and might and in it lies and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone He's realizing, I'm, I am king. I am the anointed king of Israel. I could have anything I want, but it's not because I did anything. It's because of who God is. And this is even David realizing that. That is, that is what real humility looks like. C.S. Lewis had this insight about humility. Again, here's another C.S. Lewis quote. But if you ever read Mere Christianity, it's a book by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't, I can categorically recommend that you do he had this insight about humility listen to this now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive it's competitive by its very nature while the other vices are competitive only so to speak by accident pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. Wow, make no mistake, pride, this is me again, pride is a dangerous and an addictive drug being fed to you by every outside influence that you have in this world. Every commercial you watch, every movie you see, every advertisement, every billboard, not even to mention what Satan is speaking to us every moment of every day but he'll use any means. It's pride that causes us to idolize the pursuit of worldly things. Worldly things, which, by the way, will never satisfy us, so we need more. Anybody ever gone, oh, I have enough money? It's rare, if you have. It's pride that causes us to attempt to exalt ourselves over others. It's pride that causes us to argue and quarrel to get our own way. This is what's happening to James and his congregation, which is why he wrote this letter to begin with. Arguing and quarreling to get their own way. Somehow thinking they know better than everyone else what we ought to do. It's pride that causes friendships to disintegrate. It's pride that causes us to lust after what we don't have. In a lot of cases, simply because we don't have it. It's pride that causes dissatisfaction over the things that we do have. And it's pride that sets the trap of comparison. Anybody get into that? Well, I would be totally happy with my life, except that person looks happier. I need more with that. My life is garbage now because I don't have what they have. Anybody fall into that or is it just me? Here's the ultimate antidote to the spirit of pride. Okay, Paul said this. Romans 3 Twenty-three, twenty-four. Write it down if you ever want to know the single greatest antidote to the spirit of pride in your life. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. If you're thankful and humbled by the redemption offered to you by Christ Jesus, say amen. Let's pray. Father God, I pray now that you speak to all of us. Speak to my heart. Speak to my heart about where I have allowed pride to come into my life. Show me those places that I think I'm being righteous, but I'm not. I'm being prideful. Show me the damage done by my prideful attitudes and statements and thoughts, both to my life and to those around me. And Father God, I repent of that spirit of pride right now. I repent of partnering with that and thinking that somehow that spirit of pride is going to further me in this world when in fact it won't last at all. Only when you exalt me will I be truly held up and will I truly attain what is important because Jesus has already given that to me the gift of eternal life, the gift of reconciliation, the gift of redemption. That's not through my doing. That's through a gift of his grace and I'm so thankful for that. So Father, I praise you for your continuing redemption, for your continuing forgiveness. I lay down my burdens. I give them to you. I have no pretensions of being able to carry them myself. They are too heavy for me. I pray that you take them. Lord, I thank you for who you are and who you will always be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Folks, we have prayer team in the back. If you need prayer for anything, could be healing prayer, could be, could be more of continuing this idea of just repentance and redemption, look for somebody with a lanyard in the back. They would love to be able to pray with you. But let's worship on, and as we worship, let's take communion. When you take communion, you are saying yes to those things. We're not mocking God. If you take communion while you're still harboring pride, unrepentant pride in your heart, then you're mocking what Jesus did. And I would invite you to skip communion today. If you have unrepentant pride in your heart and you're not willing to give it up, But if you are, you're saying yes to Jesus and yes to what he taught and yes to what he gave it up on the cross for, then I invite you, I invite all of you to take communion with us. We have self-serve in the back, and then here on both sides we will have wine and we'll serve you up here. But let's listen to the worship songs. Pastor Tom has been, of all the worship pastors I've known in my entire ministry career, he probably... This is not him exalting himself. He would never do this. But he seeks the Lord in a way that I rarely have seen. And so the worship songs that he's picked for today just go along with the heart and the spirit that we're trying to teach here today. So listen to the words of the song. If you feel like singing them, raising your hands, shouting them out, do that. But let them sink into your heart as we take communion and celebrate the Lord together. Amen? Thank you, guys.